morning, everyone. Let me begin by reading the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that first Palm Sunday from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, starting with verse 28. After Jesus said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at what the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Amen, and thanks be to God, for this is his word. Aren't you just ready to celebrate the coming of spring? I mean, I know I am. To feel the warmth of the sun shining on your face, to hear birds singing in the trees, to see flowers budding and green grass kind of poking up, to know that baseball season is right around the corner. I am just ready to celebrate the end of winter and the coming of spring. Let's be, let's be happy about that today, okay? You know what? That's how Easter actually got started. Originally, Easter was a celebration of spring. The early disciples of Jesus naturally associated the resurrection of Jesus with the Jewish Passover because the Passover Seder was the meal that Jesus ate with his disciples at that Last Supper. We now call that night Monday Thursday, Monday being the Latin word for commandment, and it's echoing what Jesus said to his disciples that night uh, about his new commandment to love each other as he had loved them. Jesus was then crucified on Friday, the day after the Passover meal, and then Jesus rose to new life on Sunday, and Jesus was seen as this ultimate Passover lamb who was slain for the sins of the people. So these two celebrations, Passover and Resurrection Sunday, were always closely linked, both theologically and historically. But as Christianity spread from the Middle East sort of up through Northern Europe, it encountered other cultures and traditions, and the Germanic peoples of, the northern, of northern Europe and Scandinavia, the Teutons they were called, had a celebration of spring called Ostre, probably because their winters were just so stinking long and cold, very different from the Mediterranean winters. So they really celebrated the coming of spring, and over the centuries that Ostre celebration got merged or absorbed into the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. So by the 12th century, the word Easter was used synonymously with the celebration of his resurrection. And I am okay with that, especially this is Easter after this winter. So let's celebrate. Palm Sunday is a great day for us to be very upbeat and full of joy. Yes, the darker events of Holy Week, they are coming. But we should be in a celebratory mood today because, 
Because that's what Jesus wanted on that very first Palm Sunday, almost 2,000 years ago, when he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And the crowds went crazy for him. Think about this for a moment with me. This event was really so out of character for Jesus. Previous to this, Jesus had always avoided the spotlight. He never seemed to want to draw attention to himself. In John chapter 2, Jesus is asked by his mother if he would help friends of the family with an embarrassing wine shortage problem at their wedding reception. And Jesus responded, my time has not yet come. Jesus did not want to make a public scene. He wasn't ready for that, so he did his miracle secretly. He did most of his miracles secretly. In fact, in John 6, we're told that some of the people who witnessed his miracles were ready to take Jesus and make him king by force. And rather than go along with that or encourage that kind of public acclaim, we're told Jesus just left town. He got out of there as fast as he could. It wasn't his time. In fact, whenever the ministry of Jesus seemed to be getting to a point of drawing too big a crowd, uh, whenever he was becoming hugely popular, Jesus would then move on to a new community. He would never let the crowd kind of reach critical mass. And on numerous occasions, Jesus said to those who healed, you know, don't tell anybody. Keep it on the down low. Jesus had never looked for public demonstrations on his behalf. He never sought the spotlight until this day. We're told in various gospel accounts of this parade in Jerusalem that Jesus had actually orchestrated the whole thing himself. He'd planned it all. Secret messengers had been sent ahead to make all the arrangements, codes, words, and, and meeting places were in place. This was not a spontaneous demonstration. Jesus had this parade all mapped out. Jesus intended for it to happen, and so the question is why? Why did Jesus choreograph this grand demonstration? It was certainly was not because he wanted to throw a party just to inflate his own ego, like he wanted to get all pumped up by the people. His demeanor was actually quite different. Luke tells us in the last part of chapter 19 that as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, he catches his first glimpse of that great city before him. And his reaction was in no way to aggrandize himself. No, it says that he wept. He wept over the hardness of their hearts and how far the people of Jerusalem were from God. This procession was not some kind of frivolous joyride. It wasn't just a pep rally. It was purposeful, intentional. It wasn't provoked by vanity, but by mercy and love. It was time. It was his time. It was time for Jesus to do what he had come to do. In the John's Gospel account of the triumphal entry, Jesus explains the why to his disciples in chapter 12. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour had come. His hour had come. The countdown to the cross. Jesus was pushing the start button on all the events that would then lead him to the cross. Yes, he was also intentionally fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 about the coming Messiah, written some 500 years earlier. Zechariah wrote, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king is coming to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Yes, Jesus was purposefully fulfilling that prophecy, all because God the Father had determined the timing. 
That was another piece of the puzzle coming together for the people of Israel to see who Jesus really was. And now was the time for Jesus to fully reveal himself as God's Messiah, as the Christ, and the redemptive reason for his coming sacrifice. And all this revealing begins with celebration. Jesus hadn't really done anything yet, not really. I mean, preached some good sermons, a few, a new message about God's kingdom. He performed some pretty cool miracles, but nothing earth-shapening had happened. And yet Palm Sunday was like his victory parade. You know, when the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl this year, they were given a huge victory parade through downtown Philadelphia. People lined the streets, schools closed, ticker tape. But after the game, you know, not before the game had been played, they had to win the game first, and then you get the parade, right? Well, Jesus flipped that. He got his victory parade before the cross and the empty grave. And to understand why, I'd like to go back to the verses that we heard earlier in the service from Psalm 103, written by King David, written a thousand years before Jesus walked this earth. Let me say again, Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. If you keep reading in Psalm 103, it lists reason after reason why God should be celebrated and thanked and blessed and honored and praised. Written a thousand years before Jesus walked this earth. And yet, the key thing to notice about Psalm 103 is that it takes the cross of Christ for every one of those blessings to be real. It takes the cross of Jesus for every one of those blessings to be true. In this psalm, King David is pointing his finger forward in time forward toward what the Messiah will do for the people of God. The Messiah who will forgive all your sins. Well, David knew a lot about that. Adulterer, murderer, liar. David's hands were not clean, and he knew it. He knew the depth of his own rebellion against God. He knew how often he had compromised and, and made bad choices and he knew he had no one to blame but himself. He was his own worst enemy. And isn't that true of all of us? The hardest battle in life is against ourselves, our impulses, our mixed motives, our weak commitments, our failures, flaws, fears, our sins. All our attempts at personal redemption inevitably hit a dead end. And so we can all echo the words of Isaiah 53, 6, where Isaiah sums up our situation. He writes, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. So what's God supposed to do? How's he supposed to forgive all your sins? How's he supposed to forgive all of David's sins? Just say, hey, David, it's okay. Don't worry about it. The adultery, the murder, we'll just pretend it didn't happen. Well, that can't be right. Where's the justice in that? Every, everything in us cries out that there should be a sense of justice in the universe. There should be a, a sense of justice in God. Somebody's got to hold the world accountable for all its evil actions. Murderers can't just get off scot-free. I mean, can the greedy just get away with exploiting people? How can a holy and, and good and righteous God just pretend that that evil didn't happen? Well, a just and holy God can't. 
a just and holy God can't just sweep the sins of humanity under the rug, you know, turn a blind eye, boys will be boys, wink, wink. No, we know that's not right. A holy God cannot go against his own nature. A holy God has got to be a just God. Well, let's see what Isaiah finishes that verse. He says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who's the him? In a thousand years, David's sin is going to go on Jesus. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This psalm won't work from the beginning without Jesus. It turns out his holy God is also a merciful God, and his justice and his mercy meet in the cross of Jesus, where the sinless Holy One took our punishment, bore our sin. There's, there's nothing but sinners in this place, right? No perfectly holy people here. And so our only hope is that our sins are covered by the one who came a thousand years after King David and bore all our sins too. That's why when Jesus uh, was first seen by John the Baptist in his public ministry, John shouts out spontaneously, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. David goes on in his psalm to say of this Messiah, He heals all our diseases. Well, I believe that, that Jesus can heal. But what about that last one? I mean, that last disease, the one that kills you. If not by some accident or violence, we're all going to be killed by one disease or another. Death is our final enemy. Well, how does the Messiah heal that one? Because the Messiah Jesus went into his grave and he killed it. And he came out of that grave. Jesus killed death. That last disease, it's going to be healed too because Jesus proved he was more powerful than death itself. And based on his power, he promised to resurrect you in the same way, with that same power as his own resurrection. So on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, we do have something to celebrate. Jesus conquered death, proved it by coming out of the grave. He bet his life on this truth, and he won. And so his great promises are true, like John 14. I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again to take you to be with me, so that you will always be where I am. Or John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. His promises are true, and death has been defeated. David describes it this way in verse 4. He redeems your life from the pit. Not just the pit of depression or the pit of sadness or the pit of hard times. David is talking about the grave, the pit of death. The New Testament actually picks up on this idea where the Apostle Paul preaches about David's death. Paul says in Acts 13, 36, Now when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he died and is buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. And therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins proclaimed to you, through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Paul got it right. Jesus went into the pit of death and came out to give us victory over both sin and death. And then he gives us his kingly crown of love and compassion. That's what David says he will put on your head. Jesus comes out of the pit of death to give us ultimate hope and healing, including you, if you put your life in his hands. I'd encourage you just to keep reading through all the benefits enumerated in Psalm 103. It's quite a benefits package. They all point to what Jesus will do as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As the resurrected one who conquers death and gives us the promise of forgiveness and eternal life. And even beyond that, when he comes again with the promise 
of a new heavens and a new earth, then this psalm will be complete. So all of that is what Jesus wanted people to celebrate on that first Palm Sunday. And today he wants our souls to be filled with his joy. David says, praise the Lord my soul. Let all my inmost being praise the Lord and forget not all his benefits. God wants you to be emotionally connected with what he is doing, what he has done. From your soul, praise and thank him. If you really get it, if you really understand the depth of his love, the enormity of his grace, your soul, your innermost being, you cannot help but feel gratitude. You know, too many Christians seem only to respond to God with their minds or their intellect. We're conditioned to be, you know, so rational and reserved in how we respond to the Lord. But when you find something great or enthralling or you experience something wonderful, you can't help but feel it well up inside you. And you want to let it out. There's a, there's a visceral, almost instinctive need to tell someone to praise it to others. Last weekend, my sister and her two daughters were together in New York City, and Don and I and my son Jonathan and a buddy of his from college, we all went into Manhattan and had dinner, dinner together at a great, fun rooftop restaurant in the Flatiron District. I don't know how many people I've told about that restaurant this past week. It was such a great place. We had such a good time, and I wanted to share that experience with others. How sad if we don't have even greater joy over what Jesus has done for us. How sad if we're unwilling to share with others all that Christ has done for us. Dr. Tim Keller writes, When we have had our imagination captured by something, we unavoidably need to praise. Your soul, your innermost self, it should connect emotionally with God. It is good for you to feel it. It is good for you to praise Him. It is good for your soul to bless His name. Good for you physically and emotionally and intellectually to be caught up in the joy of your salvation. Keller also writes, We cannot merely believe in our minds that God is loving or wise or great. We must praise Him for those things and praise Him to others. If we are to move beyond abstract knowledge to heart-changing engagement. Heart-changing engagement. That's a powerful phrase. It's a powerful concept. You know, the world is such a mess. I don't have to convince you of that. There's injustice everywhere in the world. Greed, racism, war, hatred, power-hungry people, self-centered people. Everybody's got an agenda. How can people possibly be changed? How can people be changed without the grace of God? To change people, you have to change what they worship. If people only worship themselves or their cause or their country or their political party, they will never change because we are what we worship. We are what we put at the center of our identity, our soul. What captures our soul's imagination is sort of who we are. And so to see change, it only comes through the grace of God. God molds together justice and mercy in the cross, and, and everyone can be forgiven of their sins, their sins of racism or greed or selfishness or, or apathy as they turn to him. That's what the cross is all about. The world is a mess because we love the wrong things. Our anger and anxiety and discouragement all comes from our distorted loves, our disordered loves, as Keller says. Our relationship problems result from disordered loves and our social and cultural problems as well. What can re-engineer our inner being? What can refashion the structure of our personality? What can recreate 
healthy human community. We must love God supremely, and that's cultivated through praise and adoration. So praise God for his love, the joy of what Jesus has done. Have thanksgiving in your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. These are good things that feed your soul and make it light and free and full of grace. C.S. Lewis once said that the joy and praise of God is like one's mind running back up a sunbeam to the sun. I like that. The joy of the soul is returning to God what he has given to you. Do you hear how practical this message is? People often wonder, could God possibly love me after what I've done? Perhaps, you know, you feel like a failure with God, that there's something that you're ashamed of that that leads you to think it's impossible for God to, to really care about you. Folks, look with fresh eyes at this parade into Jerusalem. Jesus is not surprised by our failures. He knew many of those same people who were shouting his praises on Sunday would be calling for his crucifixion on Friday. He had no illusions about them. He knew how inconsistent they were, and he wept for them. He came to Jerusalem in order to deliver these people and us from all those things. He, he knows what we've done. He wants us to make us clean and set us free. His invitation is very simple. Don't stand in the back of the crowd. Don't hide in the corner. Come out and praise him for who he is and what he's done. Connect emotionally with the cross and the resurrection. Connect with the very one who wants to love you more than you have ever been loved before. On that day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the disciples, they were still pretty confused about what God was doing. They did not understand the significance of what they experienced. Only later did they come to see the hand of God in all that was taking place. And that may be true in your life as well. The fact that you don't understand all of what is going on in your life does not mean God is not at work. He is at work, forgiving, healing, redeeming your life from the pit, crowning you with love and compassion. So it's time to join with the crowd. It's time to kind of throw your hat in the air and celebrate the goodness of our God. Let Jesus fill your soul with joy. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to add our praises to those voices that praised you so many centuries ago. Lord, may you fill our hearts with joy, even as we anticipate the rough patch ahead of Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and all the rest, Lord. May we still see your ultimate purpose at work, to know that your time had come, the time of your revealing of your true purpose and your redemptive love. And next Sunday, Lord, may our hearts even overflow more and more with joy for all the many blessings you have given to us. We thank you, our Savior. In your name we pray. Amen.